Today, we are going to start a, a short seven-week series on um, an aspect of that we don't maybe think about a lot, but matters a great deal. And it's the application of sanctification to the way that we talk to ourselves. And uh, so over the course of seven weeks, we were looking at uh, various scriptures and texts that um, uh, that help us understand that. What I do want to do this morning is take a few minutes to introduce that topic and um, maybe help us to get our bearings of, of how these two things have come together for us um, uh, to turn it into a series um, coming up. There's a few verses that I want to read just to begin to lay the foundation for us. Um, they're recorded in the sermon notes there that you have, so you don't necessarily have to follow me to find them all. I'm going to read them in, uh, in sort of quick succession, but I want you to get a picture of an aspect of our inner life that uh, the Bible talks about, which we need to be reminded of. The first text uh, is found in the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. And it's uh, verse 6, and this is certainly a verse that you would do well to memorize. But uh, Psalm 51, verse 6 says this, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God is concerned about truth in our inner being. Another verse that um, is important for us to consider and this notion of sanctification, and I will explain what sanctification is a little bit later for those who maybe are wondering what that word means. It is a biblical word, but Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says this, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There we get an understanding that uh, the holiness and sanctification is a work that is not only external in our actions with our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, those kinds of things, but it's a work that takes place in our very inner parts. And then we turn over a little bit further to the book of Titus, and here we have uh, 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 just a comment about uh, uh, a soul that's not been cleansed. And in, first, uh, in Titus chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says this, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. For both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Again, it's the focus of Scripture that drives us to think about how do we deal with the stuff that goes on in our minds and our consciences. And then just back a few uh, pages to the uh, book of uh, Thessalonians. At the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we have this beautiful benediction which reminds us of the work of God in sanctification in our lives. And it says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. I like that reminder. May he sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Our God and Father, we come before you today and I thank you for your word. And as we consider our thoughts today, I pray that we would begin to understand that they matter to you. That it is possible for us to have a conscience and a mind that is not pure and that is unclean. It is possible for us to lose sight of the fact that you desire truth in our innermost being.
that you want both our consciences, or you want our spirits and our bodies to be made pure and complete. And so, Father, I pray that some of these truths will begin to rattle around in our hearts and minds and that they will begin to impact and affect our living for you in these days ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you are like me, but you've been thinking about something and, and uh, you've been thinking about it for a long, long time. For some of you, it might be something you've been thinking about for 20 years or for uh, for 15 years, and it still hasn't yet settled for you. You're still trying to understand it. Maybe it's a problem you've been working on. Some people work on a problem at work or some physicists or some scientists work on a problem and they, they just keep working at it. It's like searching for a cure for cancer. They just keep working at it. They keep coming around and all of a sudden, once in a while, you make an incredible discovery and all you're thinking, all you're investigating comes to a point where it makes sense. Sometimes the things that we are trying to make sense of are complex, like what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Or what do, what do you want to do with your retirement? And you kind of mull it over in your head and you think about options and you think about alternatives. For some, it might be pursuing a relationship and looking for that right uh, man or that white woman for which they want to engage in marriage for the rest of their life with. And so they mull over what the, the, the characteristics and the attributes of that person might be. But over time, you just keep coming back to that issue. You keep rolling it over in your head. You keep building little things upon it. And you just keep letting your mind settle there. And then, as I say in a moment, it seems like all of a sudden, all the pieces fall together. And it's like one of those amazing aha moments. And you have a solution to your problem. The decision that you have been wrestling with, now there is clarity that you have. The direction of your life now begins to make sense. And if you've ever experienced that, it's just this remarkable sense of, oh, finally. Well, for a few years, I've been wrestling with two different issues. And they have been coming together more and more in the last couple of years, and particularly the last year. The first is the issue of self-talk. And you might think, well, are we in a class of Psychology 101? No, we're not. We're in Bible 101 or Theology 101. But self-talk, self-talk is that conversations that all of us have within ourselves. It's those internal conversations that are rarely verbalized, but we all have frequently throughout each and every day. A constant basis that we have. Close to 25 years ago, I was studying to teach a Sunday school class on Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. It was the parable of the rich fool. And as I was looking for sources and looking for help to try and understand it, as providence would have it, I stumbled on a book that was written by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was um, probably one of the best preachers of the 20th century. And the little book was called Healing and the Scriptures. And in the first chapter of that book, he only addresses actually one paragraph with this parable, but it's a paragraph that just set my life and my thinking on a different course. And in that one sentence or paragraph was this single sentence and this portion of a sentence. And he says this as he's talking about the rich man. He now turns to himself and addresses his soul and says, and I thought, can you do that? Can you really talk to yourself? Can you address your soul and can you help it make wise decisions or unwise decisions? And it was like with that single phrase, a light went on in my head. It was more like a dimmer switch. 
And it just goes kind of turn on and there's just kind of this faint little light. And over the course of about 25 years, that dimmer switch has been turned up and up and up. And now it's like this glaring bright 480 watt bulbs that are going off in my head. As I was thinking about that in the early part of the week, and I'm sure it's the same week, I came to read another book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, which addressed the same situation. And it was a, a, a remarkable book. It's called Spiritual Depression. If you want a good read, it's a difficult read, but it's a great read. And the title is a little misleading, but it's about how we get off track as Christians because we don't think correctly about biblical truth. And so the book is called Spiritual Depression. And in the very first, uh, in the introduction to that book, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, or the doctor, as he's affectionately called, writes these words. And these words, you have to understand, hit me the same week that the other words that I read you. He said, have you realized, this is Lloyd-Jones talking now, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life now, that's, a, that's an amazing statement in itself. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you, and they bring back the problems of yesterday. The main art in the main matter in spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. Even that is an, a brilliant phrase to think about. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. Take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, and he's dealing with Psalm 42 and 43, which are amazing psalms, and I commend them to you later on the day to read. But you must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What, what business have you been disquieted? You must turn to yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God. Who God is, what God is, what God has done, what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him who is the help of my countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. See what he's saying? You have to speak truth to yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to give yourself a shake. And you have to speak truth to yourself. I didn't realize what God had started in my life through those two providences. But it has been a real help to me over the years. I now realize that there's a lot of people who have a great deal to say about self-talk. You can go and Google self-talk and find a ton of stuff written on it. You can go in the aisle of any supermarket and there'll be some article about how to talk to yourself or how to improve your self-talk. It is everywhere out there. It is in psychology. It is in business. It is in management. It is in cognitive behavioral therapy. It's all out there everywhere. But I'm not interested in self-talk that will help me improve my golf spring. Nor am I interested in self-talk that is helped to, that is meant to help me increase my sales at work or to make me a more successful person. I've never been interested in self-talk as a form of self-improvement. And I guess that's because I know something about myself. I don't trust myself. 
Years ago, there was an Archie comic. Some of you may be familiar with Archie. I, I don't know how old you have to be to be familiar with Archie and Jughead. But uh, there's this uh, great Archie and Jughead uh, cartoon. And Jughead tells Archie that he fears he will fail at something he wants to do. So Archie then um, gives Jughead some time-honored advice. He says this, Tell yourself you can do it. Speak positive messages of success to yourself. And Jughead answers, that won't work. I know what a liar I am. (laughs) I don't trust myself. Because I know what a liar I am. What I am concerned about is speaking truth to myself. And what did begin to capture me as I reflected on this and have over the years is how many places the scripture talks about our inner dialogue. And not only it talks about it, but it explains the content of it. And how many of those places in scripture are actually negative and how the impact of that self-talk is destructive and sinful and harmful for us. Phrases like she said to himself or he said in his heart or he said to himself or the fool said in his heart and other variations of that. And I began to think, well, if that's the case, then ought I not to be concerned with what I say to myself? Ought I not to think twice if I'm speaking things that are wrong about myself or about other people? And I began to think about just just so many things. One of the things that we even sing a song about self-talk. I don't know if you're aware of it. The song, It Is Well With My Soul. Thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. That songwriter got it. When the sea billows blow, when my life is turned upside down, I need to speak truth to myself. And so, I would say, God, you have taught me to say, your steadfast love is sure every day. Or Paul, thou hast, God has taught you to say, I am good and always faithful to you. So does it matter what we say to ourselves? I know it does. And I think what's beginning to bother me and has over the years is I'm now more and more troubled by how often we don't realize the conversations that we have with ourselves. Or worse, we don't care about the things that we say to ourselves. We don't examine the basis of our fear or our worry or our hatred or our depression or the kinds of things that we say to ourselves which are simply not true and are simply not in keeping with the word of God. We tell ourselves that certain behaviors are okay, that certain actions are acceptable to God, even though in clear light of Scripture, they are not right or true. Well, how does this happen? Well, I think it's largely because we do not filter our inner dialogue through the Scriptures. We don't hold it up to the light of Scripture. We succumb to the whispers of our heart and the lies of the world which fuel our thinking and therefore our talking to ourselves. You might have been here a few weeks ago when we talked about self-control. Self-control is one of the more significant areas of spiritual maturity and of Christian discipleship. 
And I think part of self-control is learning to talk to ourselves. But Paul, in the letter to Titus, mentioned self-control a number of times. He said, old men, you need to learn self-control. Young women, you need to learn self-control. Old women, you need to learn self-control. Young men, you need to learn self-control. And just in case we missed it, he says, the grace of God appeared teaching us how to live self-controlled lives. I am convinced that that self-control is not only a matter of our external actions and behaviors, but it is certainly a matter of how we think and how we talk to ourselves. Some of you may be familiar with John Stott, and he makes this connection between self-control and our thinking. He he writes this, he says, self-control is primarily mind control. That's a pretty amazing statement. Self-control is primarily mind control. What we sow in our minds, we reap in our actions. That's amazing too. In other words, what you think about will eventually become what you do. And then he goes, the kind of food that our minds devour will determine the kind of person we become. Wow. Garbage in, garbage out. The stuff that we watch on TV or the stuff that we watch in the movie theaters, the kind of music that we listen to, the kind of books that we read, the kind of magazines that we devour, all of those things are stuff that we take in. And if we don't correct that wrong behavior and the wrong thinking that comes in there, it will come out and influence our attitudes, our actions, and behaviors. Stott again says, what we sow in our minds... We'll reap, we will reap in behaviors. Who you are as a follower of Christ will be no better or no worse than the thoughts that you entertain in your head. One individual who has spent a great deal of time researching all of this kind of stuff and the science of thought writes that thoughts influence every decision, word, action, and physical reaction we make. That's astounding. She goes on to say, that our, that, that our behavior follows our thinking, not the other way around. And she further goes on to say that there's this massive body of research, both secular and Christian, that shows that up to 80% of physical, emotional, uh, mental health issues today could be the direct result of our thought lives. Another individual wrote, research has shown that one's thought life influences every aspect of one's being. That's important for us to understand as Christians. We always like to quantify things, don't we? And so somebody might say, well, how much do you talk to yourself? Well, if it's me, I'm talking to myself constantly. I can never measure it, and and, and I don't know how you would ever measure it. You can measure somebody's verbal speech. You can attach a tape recorder. I could walk around with this mic for the next seven days, morning, noon, and night, and I could record every word I say. And at the end of seven weeks, I could divide it by seven. And I would come up with the average amount of words that I speak. And I would probably find that the average amount of words that I speak are less than the average. Well, I better stop there. Uh, I just I caught myself. See, self-talk. I'm talking to myself as I'm preaching. Um, but you can't do that with your inner dialogue. But we know that a great deal of what we do in our day is we talk to ourselves. And while we can't quantify it, we know that it has a significant influence on our attitudes, actions, and behaviors. Because what we think, what we tell ourselves, how we talk to ourselves will then come out in our attitudes, actions, and behaviors. It will determine our external life. 
And this has been proved again and again and again. So if you want to grow in sanctification, if you want to grow in your external walk with God, in the way that you talk to your children, in the way that you talk to your spouse, in the way that you deal with your employers and what you do with your time, then change the way that you talk to yourself on the inside. One of the things that, that has struck me, and you say, and it will come to make sense in, in a couple of moments, is how deceptive our self-talk is. When you and I have a conversation with somebody else, you can challenge a statement that somebody makes. And so you might be talking with your spouse and you might make, you know, as we do, these sweeping statements or these, these, these sort of irrational statements. Say, well, that's, that's stupid. Why would you say something like that? And, and so there's a check. But what's the check in your heart? See, that's the problem. Our self-talk is so subjective. And, it, and, it, and there's nothing to check it. Unless we're believers and we put it through the grid of God's word. You see, the Bible tells us, it says, above all else, guard your hearts because from it flow the springs of life. And in another place, in, in the book of Mark, Mark says that it's from the heart that all kinds of sin flow. So that tells me I better get at my actions and behaviors a lot earlier than maybe I have been for a lot of my life. I would I maybe challenge you to do it this way. Just listen to yourself. For a day. And then ask yourself, would you let your children talk like that? Would you think it was wise if your wife talked like that to you? Would that be any way for an employer to talk to their employee? You get a notion of how bad sometimes it can be. That was the first line of thought then. It was just one of these things I, I started following and have been. The second one is sanctification. And this, this is uh, sort of an easy one. I've been wrestling with sanctification ever since 1979, September. That's when I became a follower of Jesus Christ. And when one becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, what happens is their heart is changed. Uh, I became a new person. I became a new creature in Christ that day. Part of me, all of me, came alive. I once was dead, now I was alive. I was once in darkness, now I was in light. I once had no life, and now I had life. And so all of a sudden, at that point, it was, it's, been, it's been to lesser or greater degrees, I have been concerned now about this great separation that exists between myself and my father. And I want to be more like my father. In fact, I want to be like my brother Christ. And so I've been wrestling with that all of my life. What is sanctification? Well, sanctification is God's work within each of us to make us holy. Or we might say God, it is God's work within us to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's a short definition. You can find terribly long definitions about sanctification. But it's a, it's both a definitive act and it's a progressive work of God in us. And I'm concerned about the progressive work of God, whereby day by day by day by day, over months, over years, over decades, over maybe centuries, God is working in us to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. This matters to God. It's all over the scriptures. In Leviticus, um, Moses is said, is told to speak to the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy. 
For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Or in Peter, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity who dwells in us. It's a work of the Holy Spirit on the basis of what Christ has done for us, which bring about, brings about this amazing transformation in us. It, it means, in general terms, in very, it just means separation. To be sanctified or to be holy means to be separate. Well, what are we separate from? We are separated from the world. We are separated from sin. We are drawn out from one environment into another environment. It's like the air that we breathe, the ethical and the moral air that we breathe is now different. But it's not also only a separation from, but when we are made sanctified, we are, we are made a possession of God. We are his spiritual possession, his special possession. We are his sons and daughters. And so we want to be like him. And so it's this process, again, of being separated from all that is opposed to God and being joined to all that is God. It's a beautiful thing, really. It's a painful thing, really. But the goal is that it will all bring glory to God. Sanctification is not an option, loved ones. You need to hear that. You can't just become a Christian, and, and, and Romans says this, shall I continue in sin that grace might increase? What was Paul's response? No, may it never be. So, so when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have no desire to become like your brother Christ, then you need to check something out in your heart and say, why do I not want to be like Christ? So sanctification is not an option. It should be the priority and the pursuit of everyone who calls himself a Christ follower. So I've been following that ever since I became a Christian back in 1979. So how do these two things then go together? This this notion of, 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 of how we talk to ourselves and sanctification. Well, I read one of the texts a little bit earlier this morning. A text that you would do well to memorize. You desire truth in my innermost being. Every corner of my life, both what is seen by others and what is only seen by God, needs to be purified. We are to be concerned about sanctification of the whole man, of defilement of both body and soul. There is no aspect of my life, loved ones, that is outside of the cleansing, purifying work of God. To give you a sense of, of how this matters, I was reading, I, you know, I'd never read this before, and, and although I've been thinking about this for dozens of years, Job chapter 1 verse 5. Job is a, an amazing book, and, and it starts out the first four verses, and they just talk about what an amazing man Job is. He, he's blameless. He's righteous. He's rich. He's a, he's a follower of God. He loves God with all of his heart. And he's been blessed with three daughters and seven sons. And every once in a while, it seems like the, the sons and the daughters get together, and they have a big feast or a big party. They might be religious festivals. They might just be a party that they have together. But it says that after those feasts, Job, as the priest of his family, which is what we as husbands and fathers are, the priest of his family, Job would then offer sacrifices and prayers on behalf of his children. And you know why he did it for his kids? 
says, lest they had cursed God in their hearts. That's staggering. Because that tells me that I can, on the outside, you might think, well, Paul's a wonderful guy. You know, he talks always nice. He's never mad. And, you know, he never speaks mean about anybody. But in my heart, I can say some pretty nasty things, and not only about other people, but about God. So this passage just reminds me that Job was concerned about the self-talk of his children. We ought to be concerned about our own self-talk. What about some other issues? Lust. Uh, what, is, what is lust? Lust is internalized sexual talk. That's what it is. That's what Jesus says. If you lust after another man or woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery for them. You can't lust without talking to yourself about another man or another woman. He says, don't, if you've lusted in your heart, if you've talked sexually inside yourself about another person who's not your spouse, you've committed adultery. What about hatred? We can talk to other people and be really rosy to their face. But as they walk away, we can, oh man, you're just the scum of the earth. I don't like you at all. Like You've got my job. You got my girlfriend. I don't know, but we can have. I don't. Need, I, well, I do know how to hate, I guess. But what is hate? It's it's internalized dialogue that we won't express outwardly. But Jesus says, if you hate somebody, you have murdered them. What about coveting? Coveting is not an external behavior. Coveting is something that we do inside of ourselves. Ah, she got the car that I had always wanted. I've been saving for 15 years for that car and that color. She's got it. I want it. She doesn't deserve it. You can can make the old examples up in your head, but coveting is self-talk that we don't express verbally. So loved ones, I hope you can begin to see that what we say to ourselves matters. And God is aware of what we say to ourselves. He says in, in Deuteronomy, and I'm going to preach on a, a Deuteronomy next week. It's, an, it's a fascinating book. But as, as the people of God are about to enter into the land of Canaan, uh, God says to the people, as you're about, he says, So you shall drive the people of Canaan out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised. But do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Oh. In other words, God knows what I say to myself. I've been saving for this house for 25 years. I've worked hard for it. I've got lots of contracts. I was educated so I can buy this house. God has given me this house because I'm a really good person. God would say, don't say that in your heart. You have that house because God has given you a mind. He has given you an education. He has given you wisdom. He has given you favor. And you have that house because of God's goodness to you. Not because of any righteousness in your heart. Beloved, let's be honest. We have thoughts that debilitate us, do we not? Worry. Fear, anxiety, depression, hate. We have humanistic thoughts, like the rich man who said to himself, you know what, 
I've got lots of stuff, but I don't have enough barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. And he said to his soul, build bigger barns and live happily ever after. We have atheistic thoughts, do we not? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We have thoughts that shock us, if we're honest, of the pure evil content of them. We say, where did that come from? I'm almost done. Do you know that there are those, and I want to do a lot more looking into this in the years to come if God gives me some time on earth, but there are those who have studied the formation of thoughts, and they have studied them down to the the neurological and the neurochemical foundations. That when you plant a thought in your brain, there is a, a chemical process that takes place that if you continue thinking that pro- that thought, will embed it in your heart or in your mind, and you will you, you will make neural uh, neurochemical associations. There are those who increasingly have been writing about pornography and lust, and showing that exposure to that over uh, a long period of time alters your brain because of the chemical releases and the and and the thoughts and the the the, the connections that are made in your brain. That ought to make us sit up. Because before there was even science, God knew about that process. And that by constantly thinking about the wrong things or about evil things, we can change the chemical makeup of our brain. The good news is, though, that they have also demonstrated that you can rewire the brain. And you can change and you can eliminate those thoughts that have been built up and those chemical washes that have taken place and you can alter your brain so that it thinks the right things again. I think that's what it means to be renewed in the whole man. I need God to change the chemistry of my brain. Happens in two ways. Holiness of the mind. We can't necessarily control the thoughts and feelings that arise from our hearts and minds, but we can control what we do to them. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who says, you can't, you can't prevent a bird from flying around your head, but you can stop it from nesting in your head. We can choose what we think about. Philippians 4.8 would tell us that. Again, John Stott, in a little book, Your Mind Matters, says that in the quest for holiness, Christians have neglected their minds. We have neglected applying the truth of God and the word of God to our thinking. He says one of the most neglected aspects in this quest of holiness is the place of your mind. And then he illustrates just in a brief way what I hope to illustrate over the next five or six weeks, how we bring about the holiness of our mind. He says this, quote, We are to consider not only what we should be, but by God's grace what we already are. We are to constantly recall what God has done for us. And then he says, And say to ourselves, God has united me with Christ in his death and resurrection and thus obliterated my old life and given me an entirely new life in Christ. He has adopted me into his family and made me his child. He has put his Holy Spirit within me and made me, made my body his temple. He has also made me his heir and promised me an eternal destiny with him in heaven. This is what he has done for me. This is what I am in Christ. I love that. Here he's taking the truths of scripture and he's applying them to his thinking and when he's thinking, woe is me, he says, no, you're adopted as a child 
child of God. When he's thinking that he can't give up sin, he says, no, you have died with Christ. You have buried with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. He takes the truth of Scripture and he applies it to our thinking. Loved ones, that is what we need to do as we head out this week. The second thing that um, I think we need to do is propagandize our souls. This is the last point. I love this term. I wish I had a thought of it myself. Propagandize our souls. What is propaganda? But propaganda is the spreading of ideas and information. It's the, it's, or, or, or sometimes it's for hurtful things. Other, other times it's for helping things. It might be to injure a cause or it might be to help a cause. So I'm talking about it in a positive way. This is positive propaganda. This writer writes, all of us propagandize our souls. That is, we constantly talk to ourselves how crucial it is to feed our souls true propaganda. That makes sense. Tell yourself things that are true, especially about the adequacy of God. And then he illustrates it this way. Happily, sometimes others will rivet our minds on the right propaganda. It was in 1854, Charles Spurgeon's first year of ministry in London, cholera struck. One family after another called Spurgeon to the bedside of beloved of loved ones and almost daily he stood by a grave at first Spurgeon threw himself into his visitation of the sick with all his youthful vigor soon however weary in body and sick at heart he began to think he was about to succumb he was on the great Dover road dragging himself home from a funeral when a large broadside posted in a shoemaker's window arrested his attention that's like a billboard It did not look like a trade announcement, nor was it. In the center of the large sheet, in good, bold handwriting, stood the words, Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh unto thy dwelling. The words of Psalm 91, 9-10 took immediate effect. Spurgeon reported, Faith appropriated the passage as her own. I felt secure, refreshed. I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. He had taken that psalm and he had stuck it in his heart. Beloved, this is what I just want to encourage you and I in. To learn how to sanctify our minds. To learn how to propagandize our souls. And we'll only make progress in this through Christ. To each one here, if you're a follower of Christ, this is something you can do. Because you have got a new nature. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. And you can ask the Holy Spirit to come into you and say, I need help in this area. Ask him to apply the word of, ask the Holy Spirit to apply the word of God to the things that you say to yourself. If you don't know Christ and you're troubled by the things that you say to yourself, you can find Christ today. You can trust him as your Lord and Savior. And you can find him the one who can not only forgive you for the things that you have been speaking to yourself, but also begin to change the things that you say to yourself so that it is positive and right and good 